Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Korva. I'm Kikita Kaori. And today we are going to be working on the next episode of our Environments series on on deserts. And I think this is going to be the last one of our environment series. So one more interesting environment to go. Yeah, we do have some news in that there's been an article on the Edge website to do with Rift of the Wilds and specifically the Shinnaman Forest. So it's primary on the Shinnaman Naga, which is separate from the Ivory Kingdom's Naga, which is an interesting development that when... Path of Ways first came out, or just kind of, oh, there's a there's another group of Naga. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So we might be finding out how that's going to come out. So these were originally part of the whole of the Naga. They were separated from the people by the Shadowlands when they were created and hid from them in the Shinnaman Mori, building a great home underground there, and then slowed and slept. Their skin turned to stone. That sounds interesting. All of this is in this preview article. So it says that handfuls of Naga occasionally um, do awaken and venture out into the world to deal with various threats that might cause them problems as they sleep in, under the Shinomon Forest. They believe that the Shinomon Forest itself is calling them out to protect the forest. And then when the danger is over, the Naga go to sleep again. Which, of course, as players, gives you the advantage of being able to play a Naga just about any critical time in history of Rokugan that you want to play a Naga. It does have more... Uh, Naga rising recently in the timeline because, well, maybe bad things are are happening, beginning to happen in the timeline. Might might just be, yes. <laughs> and, yeah, the scouts can apparently use illusions to look like humans, so they do that when they're scouting, presumably so that, well, they're less likely to get horribly mangled. Although they didn't do that when they met the crab in that fiction, which is a great pity. Well, the crab kind of met them. Yeah, yeah. Probably wasn't uh, all that planned. In the rest of the world, there's going to be a new shape-shifting school. It'd be fun to see how that turns out. And there are going to be Tengu and Nizumi schools as well in Richard Wilds. Yeah, and these are meant to be models, so you can make your own non-human species if you want. But, you know, Naga go out to go observe human culture and figure out what's going on, so... You know, you have to be able to fit in, fit in there. So, um, it sounds very interesting. I, I am not personally, uh, as eager as some to play non, non human races in Rokugan, but I know some people really like it. So having a broader variety of them is, is all for the good for that. Absolutely. It, it's interesting that they're still using schools because mm-hmm. that's when we looked at the Kitsune. Long time ago. The fact that it is a school can interact with the setting and the system in interesting ways. Uh, it may be a, a limitation of the design for 5th edition for how that... Yeah, might be something to think about, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there are uh, some other pieces of little news. There's There was a collection of Halloween wallpapers uh, that Edge put out. 
That was nice. Uh, in addition, uh, Robert Denton, or Spooky Denton, uh, had a Halloween fiction that he posted about the Moth Clan, or a member of the Moth Clan. It is not official. It's just a fan fiction. But since Denton has done most of the Halloween fictions, or many Halloween fictions over the years, since the days he worked at AEG, he was kind of doing it informally, you know, on his own to continue the tradition. And the Emerald Legacy group also put out a a, uh, Halloween fiction. So if you're a little little late on your Halloween celebrating or you want to go back and reminisce, uh, you can go find a couple of good stories there. So, and, and wallpapers with scary, you know, skeleton type stuff on the Edge website. Yep. There's also been on DriveThruRPG, the Edge studio have put out Blood of the Lioness and there's also a bundle of pretty much all the PDFs, I think. Pretty much for Fifth Edge. them. Yeah, certainly it's, it's a whole heap on drive through RPG. So just encouraging new players. So mm. good stuff. Yeah, and we'll we'll have links to all of that in our show notes. It does mean that Edge is up, finally up to date with their all their published material on uh, drive through RPG and PDF. They aren't all translated into all the languages that they normally can get translated into, but at least this much as it is. So that's our news. We'll try and get that out there in something of a timely fashion, I suppose. But we are going to move on to talking about deserts. Um, deserts are not a, a big feature inside Rokugan. There aren't any deserts in Japan. Um, a desert being defined as a area of land that gets at most 50 centimeters or 20 inches a year of precipitation. So it's not like none, but not a whole lot. Now, technically you could have deserts be very small in the real world, but for gaming purposes, you can't really functionally have a desert that's going to impact your RPG in a useful way unless it's something bigger than you can cross in about four days a foot, because otherwise it's just like, oh, the land is drier here, but you walk across it anyway. It's not, <laughs> it's good, you know, it, it's, it's not quite, quite the same. But when you start getting to uh, being four or five or six days or more, <laughs> Then, then you actually get a, a desert of enough size to worry about. But there are nothing like that in the main body of Rokugan, though you could argue that certainly the Shadowlands could have areas that are like that. Absolutely. Uh, and you could say that the Unicorn Lands sort of trail out into that sort of territory. And as we all know, pretty much everything to the west of Rokugan is referred to as the burning sands. Mm-hmm. So there's certainly desert stuff adjacent. And if you spend any time going that direction, then this may all be of use. Right. So I thought we'd talk about some, some about deserts in the real world, just because we don't have an example in 
Japan doesn't mean we don't have examples in the rest of the world. And then talk about what makes the best parallels to the deserts around Rokugan in case your um, samurai get kicked out for some reason. Um, so the first kind of desert and the one that we picture most commonly when we imagine a desert are called hot and dry deserts or subtropical deserts. And they are hot and they are dry all year round. Um, these are primarily created in the areas below the, the fiercest, the strongest primary trade winds. Because what happens is that you get these really high trade winds that run all year and they run uh, between 15 and 30 degrees latitude on the earth. And they blow so hard that any time, any cloud cover that could be accumulated is all shredded to pieces. It, it, it gets blown apart by these trade winds. And because the cloud cover can't accumulate into any size without being shredded, uh, it leaves the lands underneath them exposed to the sun year round. And it doesn't uh, stay long enough in order to be able to drop their precipitation. That's why you get these big dunes because they're, they're sustained. They're all year round. They're going to be the hot and dry and, and you get these, you know, dunes and these very, very small um, areas of plants growing, you know, either rocks or, or gravel because all the dust has been blown away because of how windy it is. So it's sand. You get these sand d d deserts, not dust dust deserts as it would as it were and and so that's that's what you see when you see the sahara and you you see in the middle east and and some of the other places in the world you get these um, subtropical hot and dry deserts so that's one kind you also get semi-arid or cold winter deserts long dry summers some rainfall and a cool winter so you get things like in the mid-latitude mid-latitude deserts areas in an interior drainage basin far from the ocean and precipitation where instead of being hot, it's actually because it's too cold for the air to carry further, to carry enough water in. Right. It can't carry it into this basin. It can't carry water into this, this low area because the area, the ground around it is so high that it causes um, the water to, to drop on the other side. So it's, so it's gone through a cold area, like the mountains. It's gone through this cooler, high area and it's dropped its rain. And so now you can't get into the basin on the other side. So there's no water there. That's a mid-latitude desert. And that's kind of related to rain shadow deserts, which are the same thing. But they're not blocked in a basin. They're blocked by a really tall mountain range. And that mountain range does the same thing. It prevents clouds from reaching the protected side of the range. So if the wind is blowing north, then all the rain falls on the south side of the mountains. And therefore, when it gets to the north side of the mountains, there's no, there's no water left in it. So in that, in that area, it's, it's dry and it's called a rain shadow basin. <laughs> Another kind of desert that you can get. And this isn't in Rokugan, but this is happens on the west edge of continents. So potentially out west, you could get something like this, uh, something to think about. And these are called coastal deserts. Now, coastal deserts have cold winters and warm summers. 
And what causes them is that instead of warm ocean currents coming up near the continent, bringing all that lovely warm air and water saturated, ready to slide up on land, uh, like you get in England, Um, with the Gulf Stream, uh, instead of that, what you get is um, cold ocean currents coming near and coming down the coast. So the uh, water is moving down from a cold or polar region and down the coast south. And because of this, because it's cold currents, not warm currents, um, going on, blowing, carrying the water, the rain already fell out over the ocean, over that cold water. Um, and therefore, it's not bringing the rain onto the, the, the wet air onto the land like you would think it does. And, uh, but the, but the wind is pretty high over these currents and it, it blows and strips the, any cloud cover that did accumulate away. Um, kind of like what we talked about before. So these tend to be on the western edges of, of continents. Um, this is the California deserts. They're, they're pretty narrow. So just something to think about there. You kind of, I suspect most people don't think of being on the coast. Like how could it be a desert when there's water right there? But if, if you, you're not getting the rainfall, that's the main thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just a different kind of desert. Another place that people don't tend to associate with deserts is polar deserts because it's really cold and there's ice and surely ice is water and how can that be a desert? But for much the same reason, it's very cold. So any air that's coming up there has almost certainly lost all of its moisture before it gets there. Uh, and in fact, I think the desert, officially the desert, the, the most deserty desert, like hasn't received rainfall in a million years or something, is in the Antarctic, precisely because there's almost no precipitation that actually gets there, despite the fact that there's a massive great ice sheet. Yeah, that's very far from Rogue again. Um, so that's just being complete because we're just saying all the different kinds of deserts. You never know when your when your PCs could be teleported someplace. But as we've said, no deserts in Rokugan anyway, but or very few, if, if anything. Um, however, let's talk about deserts in Rokugan. As we said, um, there's none noted in the primary body of Rokugan. Uh, you could make an argument to have a coastal desert along the uh, edge in the Shadowlands, uh, the coastline of the Shadowlands, if you wanted to. I think that would be a legitimate place to stick one if you wanted to stick it. Of course, it'd be in the Shadowlands, so it's got other problems. Yeah, in this case, the water the, the water's not falling out the sky because it's cold. The water's falling out the sky because it doesn't want to go to the Shadowlands. Right. It's, it's crying. If you wanted to put that kind of survival issue in in there and your PCs decided they would just sail around the Shadowlands you, know, you can have them there it's fine if you were going to um, have a desert or call it a desert you put it in the northwest part of Rokugan in northern unicorn lands and then pushed out into the burning sands so I've kind of called this the, the unicorn steps desert. And 
because the unicorn culture is defined a lot like the Mongolian culture, and because of actually the geology a little bit, I think that you of all the deserts in the world, we would I would think that the unicorn steppes desert, this this area to northeast Ryokugan into the burning sands, would probably be most like the Gobi Desert. Okay, and there's a couple of reasons for that. If I was going to have a desert there, I said there was going to be a desert there. The reason there would be a desert there is because it would be a rain shadow desert. We've already put, with the snow and the weather in Rokugan, we've already put it above the latitude that you would want to have a hot and hot and dry desert, a subtropical desert. We're further north than subtropical deserts, okay? So you're talking about a semi-arid kind of desert by uh, latitude alone, okay? However, you, you can if you can get this as a rain shadow desert because you, if your prevailing winds uh, run basically from the uh, southeast towards the northwest, because then it would hit that spine of the world mountains, and it would make it nice and wet and 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 swampy um, on the southern side of it, which is scorpion lands. We love to stick scorpion in the swamp. I like sticking scorpion in the swamp. Why not? And uh, if the spine of the world mountains were kind of lower on the east side of them, which they are, then lion lands would get pretty good blowover. Uh, so they'd get some precipitation. It would not be as wet as you, uh, crane lands would be. Or scorpion lands, but you know, you get enough precipitation. But if the spine of the world mountains are higher to the um, west, then you can get this unicorn steps desert as the rain shadow off of those um, of, off of those mountains. Could you not also get something from the wall of the North Mountains if the prevailing winds are more directly east west? If the well, the wall of the north, the Great Wall of the North Mountains, run east west. So, to make a rain shadow, you'd either have to have a prevailing wind running from north to south, um, which is weird. But let's say it's possible because we don't know. Um, but then your prevailing, then your rain shadow desert would be lion lands, solidly lion lands. It wouldn't be. I was I'm just thinking, and not a lot of rainfall would get all the way to the west. Of those mountains, I would have thought. Right. Well, like I said, it, the yeah, if the prevailing winds went from east to west along the front of them, they would just keep carrying the winds inland through that channel from Otosanuchi straight through to Unicorn Lands. But, however, that doesn't mean that the uh, great spine of the world mountains don't play a part because – they are even taller than the, or the Great Wall of the North Mountains are even taller than the Spine of the World Mountains. So you can have uh, an even bigger, more impacted rain shadow north of them, or potentially north, uh, northwest of them. And then you get the area that is the, the burning sands. Um, of course, this is all just, we don't even know the geology or the geomorphology or whatever of the uh, area outside of Rokugan. So this is all just playing around. And in the depictions that we've seen, they often seem a lot more um, 
you know, the pictures are often more inspired by these Saharan type deserts rather than um, rather than the Gobi Desert. I mean, there's a lot going on because everyone kind of talks as if you you walk five steps outside of the Unicorn Lands and you're in the the Caliphate, but where are the where are the Ujik, where are the Ujikai, and all those people? They've got to be in there somewhere, and that's all the stories say. That's the first people that the unicorn ran into. So there's room for more than one sort of desert out there. I feel yes, there is. Um, it's just uh, kind of you know how how do you want to do this? How do you, how do you want to co- compare it um, in the into the burning sands uh, unicorn novel? By Daniel Clark, um, there's a lot of um, cool, you know, people here. He doesn't talk about the environment very much, but he has the story of of what peoples are where um, along that um, sand road that connects Unicorn Lands to uh, the city of Al Zawira, which is kind of the center of the Caliphate. Um, but right now, what I thought I'd focus on would be focusing on what it would be like to be in the in the Gobi in a Gobi style desert, which is the most common one your PCs would encounter unless you were doing extensive creative work outside of the empire, which you're welcome to do. Um, the desert in this kind of desert is high, pretty high elevation. Uh, it's got really, really long, dry summers. It's got very cold winters. Uh, it freezes, um, but it can get very hot during the day. You're not going to get the cover- cloud cover to protect you. Um, you're going to get broad salt flats, which is something that you're not going to find internal to Rokugan very much. Um, and that's important because we'll, we'll talk about how people make their livelihood out here. Um, obviously the biggest challenge in this kind of a desert, like the unicorn step desert, um, is that it's, it's going to be, is the biggest challenge is finding water, right? Um, so it's a, this one is a pretty well traversed desert. There are people here. There are a lot of people there, at least along the sand road. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't walk two days without seeing a person. You absolutely can. But you could do that inside Rokugan too. It's not <laughs> uh, it, it's it's not that. But for a desert, it's pretty well well traveled. Um, and your water sources are going to be found most commonly as groundwater. Um, either in well defend well defended wells, like specific wells, or in Areas where there are chasms or um, low bits or springs or other things that will be on the at the base of hills or uh, in deep drainage places where the groundwater is is hitting the surface. So you're not really going to very often find a lake or a pool that'll all be dried up, but they're going to be protected from the sun because they're they're going to be in these cracks and these deep deep parts that's just where it is the groundwater is low yeah so places like that are very likely to be defended especially if you're going along the actual sand road any any water sources outside that 
any 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 water source that isn't defended is going to be out of the way because they're going to be they're such valuable resources basically. But they're unlikely to provide enough water and thus enough vegetation for grazing animals. So people who've got cattle aren't going to be able to stay, aren't going to be able to camp for very long in any of these places. So, Right. Now, in a Saharan type of desert, there are animals, but you don't expect to see very many. In a desert like the Gobi, there's there's larger animals and smaller animals, and uh, it's worth knowing knowing what they are. So um, some of the larger animals that you would meet uh, in there are, are camels, and they are both wild and domesticated camels. It's not just all camels are domesticated. You can find herds of these things. Um, you have donkeys and small horses, different kinds, uh, wild horses. Um, there are bears in the Gobi, and snow leopards. So there are big predators in this environment as well. Um, they're very, 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 very rare nowadays. But when you're talking about Rokugan, um, that's that's different. That's a <laughs> different kind of environment where we don't have human-caused extinction on quite the same scale. Of course, uh, you've got cute hopping mice, Jerboas is one species, but there's actually different kinds of kangaroo mice that love this kind of environment. Gazelles, you've got pit vipers, and golden eagles, polecats. Those are some traditional Mongolian larger larger animals. You also have insects and reptiles as well. So there are toads and lizards, sandboas, uh, pit vipers again, races, spiders, scorpions, which would be make some players very happy, and all sorts of other insects. Right. And and there's quite a lot of plants in this kind of desert because the ground is not sand. Uh, it's not loose. It's rocky, you know, nuggets of dust in it and cracks. And, and so it's it's got quite a lot of um, low plants in it. These tend to be small, of course, with really tough stems and leaves. I think gorse and wildflowers that have really low to the ground green tough green leafy bodies and then big big flowers brightly colored flowers that will only bloom like after there's been a rain and they'll put out a flower and then they'll go hunker down again for however long they have to two kinds of plants are very important in the gobi desert um one is called the saxwall tree and the saxwall tree is a a tree that has a spongy, water-soaked bark, um, and its leaves are more like cusp-like scales than leaves. And that bark is a water reservoir, um, and the tree is often the only wood that can be found in the Gobi of like actual wood that can be used for cooking and burning. And so they're fairly rare now, but they were the livelihood of uh, much of the uh, traditional Mongol culture. And they used to like cut var large amounts of it. And even uh, back when the 
other countries, the British, I think, uh, colonized it, they would have them cut lots of Soxal tree to take with them. And of course, this did bad things to the population of the, of the Soxal tree, uh, which didn't do much for the people in the land. And then there's, uh, you know, tamarics and saltwort, wild onion, hair moss, just a, a variety of different smaller plants that, that survive, um, in these areas and often are indicator species. They have deep roots and can help tell you where the water is or, um, are used as an important part of the, the diet. So those are kind of the, the, the animals and plants you could find, but obviously you will also find people in a desert like this. Generally, most livestock, most people are going to be nomadic because there generally isn't enough plants in any one area to support any large kind of grazing herd for any length of time. So you got to, you know, feed your animals and move on, whether they're it's cattle or whether it's your large herd of horses or whatever. A lot of folk, um, their primary livelihood is either transport, trade, you know, they're moving goods from one end of the sand road to the other, or they're farming livestock, and all the related industry that comes from that. So cattle, yaks, camel, sheep, horses, goats, lots of different groups moving their particular herds around particular routes that have often been traveled for generations upon generations. And obviously they're going to be trading. They're going to be often feeding off those animals and trading the kind of the byproducts and trade products. So, Wool, if you've got sheep, but also leather, uh, cheeses, if they're, if they're the right kind of animal, and so on and so on. So they're making the life, they're living from their livestock in whatever way they can. And they, because they don't stay in any one place long enough, they don't farm. So their diet is much more meat based or, or meat or dairy, you know, animal based rather than vegetables. Yeah, they they eat root vegetables, but root vegetables are um, often a kind that can survive in this environment longer than, you know, yeah, their animals can eat the top and they can eat the roots, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Um, the livestock will just basically, they, they bring them to a, an area where there's water um, and they can eat all of that greenery around a single watering spot fairly quickly, which is why, why, as you said, they have, they have to move on. This is not to say that there aren't more settled peoples, um, in, into the burning sands. We find a couple places where there are, uh, like little river areas, like that are deep in canyons or something that might hold out to do a little, um, more fixed agriculture. But in the desert proper, <laughs> it's hard to do it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you do get things like, you know, a river going through the desert and there's civilization. By civilization, I mean citification. And you get some of the more traditional, you know, agriculture and farming and cities and all that kind of stuff. But that can be a, yeah, but that can be literally be this one green ribbon through an otherwise, you know, an otherwise desert place. So outside of that, very quickly outside of that, 
it's all nomadic herders because that's all that it can support. Absolutely. And so because life, uh, livestock is the primary thing, you know, as I said, we, uh, salt licks are also very important for keeping, maintaining livestock, livestock. So, um, that's where, you know, the desert also supplies these areas where there are salt licks and that's where you're going to get your horses, uh, coming to these places as well. Um, and those are somewhat harder to find in mainland Rokugan. So that's part of the reason why the unicorn have these great horses is because horses are found wild in, in a desert-like environment, um, oftentimes, and they have access to their grazing animals. They can be herded. They can be bred. They have these salt licks and, and horses in, um, Rokugan don't have those, that centuries of, of that as, as, uh, as a herding stock livestock um anyway um deserts are a unique environment because of the physical the degree of physical threat it has to uh your players uh some of the obvious threats are things like dehydration and heat frustration and and sunburn exposure you know freezing at night as well which, which I think is going to, a lot of people won't quite, a lot of people won't be quite expecting. Right, you're going to the desert, remember to bring all your warm clothes. Yes, sunburn is a thing. Yeah, but, but, yeah, <laughs> but, but sunburn is a thing, but also the, the lack of cloud cover means there's no protection from the sun, but there's also nothing keeping the heat on during the night. And so you can literally boil during the day and freeze during the night. So. You, you literally have to somehow deal with both of those extremes. And that's not, I, I think that's the thing people don't necessarily expect to have to worry about if you're going into the desert. Uh, in addition, uh, there's a lot of very poisonous, uh, very dangerous animals and plants. Um, also, water sources aren't necessarily um, guaranteed not to be poisonous. Uh, if you don't know what you're you're doing, or you're trying to get them from an unexpected source, it's hard to hard to know whether it's poisonous or not. Um, like inside this plant might not be very good for you. There are dust storms. You can have sandstorms, but sandstorms we kind of associate more with these hot and dry deserts. But even in a cool Gobi style desert, you get these dust storms. Uh, uh, when the wind picks up a lot and it, it can be a real, it can be from minor annoyance. I can't see where I'm going to, I can't breathe. I have to stop moving kind of, kind of thing. I, I believe the Gobi does have its sandy bits as well. If you really need a sandstorm. Yeah. But right. dust storms are, are going to be quite common. It's not going to look like the mummy, you know, with its waves. It might have an area of some small dunes, but um, and and you can have you can have mirages no matter what because that's as much the uh, sun and uh, the land as uh, the human eye. So all of these threats can be kind of rolled up into survival roles for your players, and and that's what you should do. So. Uh, recommend just, uh, survival roles. And as you diminish your resources, the TNs keep going up <laughs> is, is, is where. So for each, 
failed survival roll, maybe the next one is a higher TN. It, that ratchet effect is deadly, <laughs> but is a simulationist, if you will. So be sure to uh, help your, your players get there. Typical survival roles you might do is survival void roles for, you know, just zenning your way through without water, dragon style, I need nothing, subsist. You can use survival water is a common one that people would use for, for foraging about, um, you know, going across the land looking for, for resources. And uh, survival fire is a pretty good one for coming up with kind of innovative new technologies or new ideas for how you're going to get water or the things you need in, in this situation, whether it's building a lean-to or catching the morning dew or whatever is your, is your particular idea that your players have to deal with their difficult situation. I don't think air and earth are very helpful in this kind of scenario. Though survival earth can be used for building shelter or remembering, you know, different kinds of animals or, or different kinds of threats or things to, things to look out for. Um, and survival air is good for trapping or, you know, analyzing, looking for poison or for tracking people, which is what you need most to get out of, um, the desert is to try and find traces of people so that you can, you can get them before you go, you go down. Navigation from seafaring is also a very, very useful skill. So don't, don't forget that. If you want to hear Desert Survival as an AP, Fortune and Strife has, their current set is in, uh, City of Alzuera, but the first two or three episodes are, are characters trying to survive when unexpectedly dumped into the, the burning sands. So you get to hear some, you know, one GM's take on how to force your players through a, uh, a desert, desert survival scenario. It's, it's always good to push them a bit, you know, have, have strange things happen to your characters. You never know. We'll come up with some ideas next episode on reasons that your characters might be dumped into a desert and maybe some kind of stories and adventure seeds related to deserts and uh, some images and I'll finish this up. But we'll do that next episode. But that's it for us this week. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to give our usual call outs to our sister allied actual play podcast, Fortune and Strife. And we would be remiss if we did not mention our friends at D20 Radio, who have a lot of RPG content in for pretty much all of your gaming wants and needs. <laughs> yes, indeed. We have a couple of uh, patrons we wanted to call out. We wanted to call out Nate S. today for uh, being one of our sponsors. Thank you, Nate. And also Ikoma Tomoya. Thank you very much for helping us sponsor this podcast. Uh, I hope we find you find things that are useful to you here in this podcast. Um, our content overall is funded by the Community Discord Patreon and uh, friends like Nate Nick, and Tamoya and others uh, support our editing costs as well as our website where you can see and store longer term information. You can see summaries, RPG tools, and, and more. 
as we think of them. And in exchange, we try to have uh, special bonus content like Adventure Seats when we can or uh, early access to our AP podcasts and other things as we think of them. Online, you can find us at our website, courtgamespod.com. On Twitter, we are twitter.com slash courtgamespod. And our Patreon is at patreon.com slash courtgames. But that's it for us this week. This is Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I have been Korva. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy. Radio, your gamers roll.